Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. Today, we're going to talk about CITES, which stands for the Convention of International Trade and Endangered Species. The CITES Convention was founded in 1963, and like a lot of these conservation plans, it was really focused on animals more than flora. But today, there are over 5,800 animals and 30,000 plant species listed under CITES regulations. In the lumber industry, we run into this every single day when we're talking about import and export of uh, different species of wood. If that wood is at all in danger of becoming endangered, or certainly if it is already endangered, there are heavy CITES regulations on this preventing or dramatically restricting the trade of that particular species. Now, CITES is broken down into three appendices. Appendix one, two, and three. Appendix one being strictly verboten, cannot do any kind of trading whatsoever. Um, Cuban mahogany is a good example of this, Sweetina mahogany. It is an endangered species. You cannot trade it, sell it whatsoever. The only way that you can get any Sweetina mahogany is with uh, scientific reasons. If you were doing some sort of research on that particular species, you can get a small sample of it and um, have to get all kinds of paperwork and acts of Congress and God and all kinds of other stuff in order to do it. Those Appendix 1 species, no, 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 can't do anything with them, not at all, don't even ask. Um, Appendix 2, these are species that are not endangered, but they are in danger of becoming endangered if the current trade continues. If regulations aren't put onto the current trade of it and slowed it down, these species can become endangered. This is primarily what we're talking about when we talk about a CITES listed species, because obviously if you can't trade Appendix 1 at all, there's not really much to talk about there. Now, Appendix 3 is very similar to Appendix 2, but it's not a global ban. It has to do with a specific regionality. In um, some areas of the world, some countries of the world, there are species of trees that are more threatened than in other areas where there's a wider geographic range. Some areas, that particular species, it's not so much that it is threatened, but it is not being traded at all. So that um, member, that country, petitions to have that particular species listed as uh, let's regulate this so that it doesn't become endangered or it could become endangered if it continues this way. And when it gets listed on Appendix 3, that particular regionality says no more. Um, But say, for example, uh, there are uh, a couple Spanish cedars that are on Appendix 3 in certain areas of Africa, but they're not on Appendix 3 in other areas of Africa. So you can go and buy and trade from those other areas, other countries, uh, without really any regulations, but you absolutely cannot from the other country. This is that stepping stone, that kind of foot in the door to listed species and CITES. Usually it starts with some sort of local petition to get that Appendix 3 listing. And then generally when it's on Appendix 3, you can see it being uplisted to Appendix 2, meaning that globally it is now regulated from every single origin. Um, you know, it, it varies from from uh, species to species and really the current situation of that species, how quickly it becomes Appendix 3 to Appendix 2. You'll also find there's a lot of examples where a species goes directly on Appendix 2. Some uh, individual country will nominate it to be on Appendix 3. The convention 
convention will actually look at it. The secretariat um, will look at it and say, yeah, it should be on Appendix 3, but you know what? Let's go ahead and put it on Appendix 2 because, say, if you regulate it from one regionality, suddenly the trade could shift to countries around it, and that massive uh, you know, dynamic shift of trade could put those other areas into um, – into risk as, as well. So generally, once it's Appendix 3, it's very quick to become Appendix 2. And in many instances, it never even lands on Appendix 3 because just bringing it to light is enough to cause review to be automatically listed to Appendix 2. The CITES framework, and the reason it's known as a convention, is there are um, signees to the, the convention. Uh, I can't remember offhand now how many there are. I want to say there's like 69 or maybe it's 73 countries. Um, Go to CITES.org, C-I-T-E-S.org, and it probably says it right there on the on the homepage. I just can't remember at this point. It's a lot of countries who have already signed on to this. CITES is a framework, though. It is not a national legislation responsible for enforcement or regulation. An example of um, enforcement or regulation is the United States Lacey Act. So CITES says you can't trade this, but CITES doesn't say or else this will happen. CITES says you can't trade this and it leaves it up to the individual countries wherever that violation has been found to enforce that. So if uh, if we were to import a CITES species into the U.S. and we don't have the appropriate CITES paperwork saying it's okay to bring this in, the U.S. Lacey Act then kicks in, seizes the material, punishes the people who brought it in, all that fun stuff. So there are local enforcements. The European Union uh, Timber Regulation, EUTR, is a good example in Europe. But this is also that interesting little loophole because CITES and all the countries that are um, signees on CITES all agree to this this regulation, all agree to the enforcement of reduction in trade for certain species, but it's left up to those individual countries. So China, for example, is a signee of CITES. They are a member of the convention, but they have no local legislation to enforce that. So you can bring a CITES restricted species into China and nothing, nobody's going to do anything about it. So it's kind of an issue, but at the same time, you know, what do you do? You can't put together an international body and necessarily govern across, um, across country lines. Eh, maybe the United Nations kind of sort of does that, but we run into issues. You see that all the time where there are, there are problems with an international body trying to enforce regulation across international boundaries. So it is a particularly important thing to recognize that CITES is regulating or saying setting forth the regulations saying, here's the quotas that are available for this particular species or the lack of quotas. But they are not enforcing it. They are not judge and jury, you know, providing a sentence if you violate that. Very important to recognize that. The um, the rules, if you will, um, if a species is CITES listed, say Appendix 2 listed, generally there are quotas that are put in place over how much export of that species can occur. And you'll find dramatic, dramatic reductions in global export. So in order to import or export that particular CITES listed species, you have to have a CITES permit. 
Those permits are issued by that international body, by CITES. These export and then re-export permits. So say, for instance, I wanted to import some Spanish cedar, an Appendix 2 listed species, which, by the way, I said earlier was Appendix 3. It was Appendix 3. It is now Appendix 2. Um, not while I was recording this, but it is. It, it, that has now happened. It is now an Appendix 2 species. So if I wanted to import Spanish cedar from Africa, the exporter would have to have an export permit. And I would also be listed on that export permit as the importer of record. I'm the one paying for it. I'm the one requesting it being brought into the United States. But say I then wanted to sell it to a customer in the British Virgin Islands. I then have to re-export that. And because it is a CITES-controlled species, not only do I have to have a CITES permit for the original import, but I then need to get a CITES permit to export it back out of the country. So you're following that particular species anytime it's crossing an international boundary. The importer has a master permit per species. So if I am a sawmill in Africa, and I'm exporting, again, we'll just stick with Spanish cedar. I'm exporting Spanish cedar. I need to apply to the International CITES organization for a master permit just to be able to export Spanish cedar. Not a particular load of Spanish cedar, just to be in business of exporting Spanish cedar. Then once I have an order for some Spanish cedar, I can then go and apply for essentially the passport for that particular load. That then rolls up under the master permit to export that particular species. So there's a couple of levels here. And while it can get very confusing very quickly, it's also very nice. It creates a lot of paper trail. And it from from a user perspective, you can ask a lot of questions about, hey, I know this is a CITES species. Who is the importer of record? Who holds the master export permit? And you can then look at that, that CITES permit for import. And you can see, you know, I'm making this up because it varies from from country to country and species to species. But say it's, you know, permit number 1111, um, then it would be permit number 1111 slash A. You know, this this bundle of Spanish cedar would be A under the master permit of 1111. Again, we're getting very specific here. But that paperwork will give you some traceability, not only where it came from, who exported it, but they do in fact have that master export permit. You can then dig even further down to that particular load and you can start following that back through chains of custody to the original like location, the original lumber concession that that came from. And that's where this master permit comes from. If I own a concession of Spanish cedar in Africa, I apply for that master permit that CITES then turns and looks at my concession, looks at my concession plan, consults with whatever the local authorities um, managing that concession within that country in Africa and says, okay, you have Spanish cedar on your property. You do realize you're only allowed to export so much per year. So then there's even greater regulation that goes into that. What, what, is that, what does that mean to us? Certainly, if a species is CITES, it's not evil. It's not banned immediately. It actually is a very good thing. And this is a very difficult thing for me to say working in the lumber industry because um, I've been in the lumber industry since mahogany, genuine mahogany, was actually uplisted and became an Appendix 2 species. So I was able to see firsthand what the trade of mahogany was like, how easy or, well, not easy, but how it was to import genuine mahogany um, and what the price of genuine mahogany was. And then I got to see it after the... Um, 
Appendix 2 listing was and how dramatically that changed the price and how dramatically and all quotes with exclamation points after it, it reduced the supply, the overall global supply of genuine mahogany. And it was very difficult pill for us to swallow because we were major dealers in genuine mahogany, had a lot of customers that used it all the time. We were shipping out truckloads of this stuff. And suddenly we had to go to all our customers and say, not only do we not have it, but there's no more available for the rest of the year. And next year, you better get your order in early because there's only going to be like nine containers of the stuff available all year long. And oh, by the way, the price just went up about 80%. I mean, it was, it was a very tough pill to swallow for us and for our customers. But 10 years later, it's been 10 years since this happened, there's a dramatic change in the quality of genuine mahogany. And I'm, I'm citing this as a success story. It has been painful. It's been painful to everybody who uses a lot of it down to the weekend woodworker who uses it occasionally in the dramatic increase in price. And there's a lot of paperwork and there's a lot of extra stuff that goes into bringing in genuine mahogany. And that's what causes the cost to inflate. Plus, there's also that supply and demand thing. If there's suddenly like 10% of what was available before, yeah, the price is going to go up. So it, it's going to hurt as a buyer. But man, the quality was really starting to drop. The size of the logs, the number of pin knots, the number of defects and things in the logs, the color variation and, and the, um, shall I say, differences within one load because that genuine mahogany was coming not just from one particular concession, but four and five different concessions across a wide geographic range. So you were actually seeing different working properties from like northern Bolivia to southern Brazil all in the same load, kind of like Africa mahogany is now, where you know every board is a little bit different because they were grown 2,000 miles apart. But the biggest issue was just the size availability. Suddenly there were no wide boards, and I mean wide as in wider than six inches wide. There were no long boards. They were all like six feet long, and there were still a lot of defects in what is normally a very clear, wonderful to work wood. Well, now 10 years later, as the material that we bring in still dramatically reduced and the overall volume that we can bring in, but the quality has gone up dramatically because there's been so much less of those trees felled and there's been a lot more ability for the concessions to be managed from a very long view. And just in 10 years, there has been a marked change in the quality. Now, there is a very long way to go with genuine mahogany. It may never become delisted. I don't, I'm trying to think of a, an example where I've seen a species of anything go on CITES and ever come off. Um, you know, these are very long games to make this work. And I don't know if that's true. I actually haven't looked into it. But it is a good thing. It's something that we in the lumber industry kind of roll our eyes and go, oh, man, CITES is kind of a pain because there is a lot of politics to it. There is someone can petition to put a particular species on and and there are conventions. There is actually a convention that happens where every petition that's been put in place is then voted on by the, the member countries to say, yay, we want to list that appendix two or nay, we don't want that. So it, it is this this international cooperation thing to get these things listed. Um. And let's just say politics can happen. People can lobby back and forth and say, well, if this particular country has voted for it to be in in this uh, in Appendix 2, but these three countries over here have a major gross domestic product coming from the export of that species, it's understandable that they don't want that to happen. And, you know, maybe that's 
mercenary of them. Guess what, folks? Is the real world. If they're making, if their country is making a lot of money on the export of, say, Ipe. Ipe is a good example because Ipe is due to be voted as an Appendix 2 species. Then suddenly it's been removed and no longer it's being voted on. So I don't know who originally proposed it, but I can guarantee you Brazil was not against it being on there because Brazil exports a lot of Ipe. And I will say, you know, IBAMA, the, the local forestry um, ministry of forestry in Brazil, has done a really good job of managing the IPE forests. And they feel like they've got a handle on it and they don't feel that um, it is in risk of being endangered based upon the current trade because they feel like they're able to, to control that and regulate it. And they have their own legislation in place and regulations to prevent too much of, of the cutting. Whether this is true or not, CITES is kind of there in this overarching review to say, yeah, that's nice, Brazil, but these other countries over here are having problems with it. And we're afraid, like I said before, if, say, Uruguay puts it on Appendix 3 and all the import of IPE from Uruguay suddenly stops and it shifts to Brazil, that may be a bit, bit of an issue. But certainly that political, you know, gerrymandering of, of, of who lists what goes on. So you do kind of roll your eyes from time to time, but that's, that's politics. But I'm choosing to look at this from a positive perspective. Yes, it dramatically increases the cost of this lumber, but look at it this way. If that regulation didn't happen, that lumber, that species would go away. It would become endangered and it could be appendix one listed and we'll never get to use it again. Using general mahogany as a case study and seeing what a wonderful wood it is to work and actually seeing in my 10 years, actually it's been more than that now, but in 10 years in the lumber industry, seeing the quality look pretty bad to suddenly much, much better again, that's really affirming. And that's really exciting to think that there is something out there that's working. Is it perfect? Hell no, far from perfect. Um, there's a lot of stuff that can go wrong with it. Again, because there is no actual enforcement on the side of things, you can have CITES species all day long being listed and being sent off to a country like China and nobody's getting harmed or anything. But it it's a step, right? It's a step in the right direction. And hopefully we can continue to build on it and make more come of it. So I, I really wanted to talk about this because you'll hear me mention CITES all the time. We're talking about an exotic species. And I, I, I get reactions from people who are media like, oh, that's CITES. It's gone. It's going away. We're never going to see it again. And you're evil for using that particular species. It's not the case. If you know that the species that you want to use is CITES listed, A, there's a lot of questions you can ask about who is the importer of record and let me see your CITES permit. And who did you import it from and let me see their master CITES permit. Now, here's the thing. There, there's really not just this cut and dried single piece of paper. There's usually a lot of paperwork and a lot of people aren't just going to give you everything because there is some some um, intellectual, not intellectual property, like business contacts and things in there, giving up their suppliers and things like that. But they can certainly list import permit numbers and things like that that can be looked up and you can go and, and research this through CITES.org and, and really begin to understand who's doing it right. Hopefully, People who aren't doing it right are not getting it out of port. And the U.S. Lacey Act is then swinging in to seize those things, to shut that down, shut down that company, investigate further, and just make sure this type of stuff isn't happening. So again, it is best to buy as close to the importer of record as possible. Because once things move downstream from the importer of record within country, there's no additional need for permits. 
So say if we bring in some material as the importer of record and we sell it to somebody who sells it to somebody who sells it to somebody, as long as they were in the United States, there was no need for a CITES permit to be involved in that point. So it can become diluted and it can be a little bit hard to, to find out where that lumber came from. This is the other reason to use an actual lumber company versus material that was just brought in by a broker. Because the broker, they're not going to sell it to the public. They don't even really know what it is. They just brought in some lumber. They may have their import permit for whatever that lumber is, but a lot of times it's multiple species of lumber, multiple permits involved, but they are immediately selling it off at the port. They're not bringing it to a lumber yard somewhere and inventorying it. They're selling it off from there, usually in some sort of um, multiple buyer type situation. So that material that was brought in legally or, or not legally was immediately broken up and you lose track of that CITES permit right away. So if you're using exotic lumber and you ask a couple questions from your dealer and they got it from a broker, not an actual lumber yard, I would stay away from that stuff. Um, a lot of times the quality is a major issue because again, the broker is buying that material sight unseen. There's really been no quality control on the way or any specific requests for that particular species of lumber, you know, width, length, grade specs. It's just kind of whatever came in and it very quickly, uh, you lose traceability and a lot of times you lose quality. So try to buy as close to the, from the importer's record if possible. If not from the importer of record, maybe one party removed. And you can ask these questions about, hey, this is a CITES listed species. Who did you buy it from? You know, what is their import? Do they, do they have an import permit? Who did they get it from, et cetera, et cetera. So this is a good thing for us. If you are worried about using exotic lumber and, and contributing to deforestation, there are things in place for you to do your homework and make sure that you're buying a sustainably harvested and legal species. So again, I'm going to continue to talk about CITES. In the future, I'll spend some time talking about the U.S. Lacey Act because that is the enforcer in the United States. And I'll try to spend some time talking about the uh, EUTR, the European Union Timber Regulations as well, since we have quite a few listeners over in Europe. So if you have questions about CITES, let me know. I'm hardly the authority on this, um, but I've done a, a fair amount of research into it. We deal with it day in and day out. It is a, a very difficult, well, time-consuming, somewhat tedious process to get your CITES permits. So the people who have them have put a lot of work into this and they generally know what they're talking about. People who don't have them um, they and don't want to deal with it are buying downstream and the price is obviously going to go up every time another person is added to the mix there. So another reason to buy close to the importer of record is certainly from the traceability perspective, but you generally can get a better cost per board foot as well. That's a 10,000 foot view of CITES. Let me know if you have questions. Thanks for listening and diving into kind of an obscure topic in the lumber import industry. If you want to hear more weird stuff like this to wow and amaze your friends at cocktail parties, then tune in next time for more lumber industry update. And I do want to say a special thank you to all of my patrons who have supported the show. If you want to support the show, go to patreon.com slash lumber update. In fact, I have just added a new goal to our campaign where I'm actually going to create a YouTube channel and I'm going to do a video that 
dives deeply into one particular species because I get questions all day long about how does species X work? What do you know about species Y, et cetera, et cetera. And I think over time we can compile kind of an encyclopedia of how wood works. This would be videos of me at the bench actually working a particular species, talking about its origin, sourcing, all kinds of fun facts that again can wow and amaze your friends at cocktail parties. Right now we're about 40% of the way to that goal. So if you'd like to see that happen, and just want to support the show, again, patreon.com slash lumber update. Become a patron today at Patreon. Anyway, folks, thank you so much for listening and go buy some wood.